Welcome to the Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh Clinical Conversations podcast. Each episode within this podcast series, we delve into a different medical topic with an expert speaker to join us. If you want to find more about the Royal College, then please do head over to the RCPE website and have a look at the education stream and see if membership would work for you. It offers a host of educational updates and activities such as the evening medical updates, the Royal College Symposia and many more. Please don't forget if you listen to our podcast to give us a rating on one of the podcast platforms or subscribe so that it can come directly into your podcast stream. Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of Clinical Conversations. My name is Dr Johnny Bargett and I'm a TMC member and today I am delighted to be joined by Dr Gurub Choudhury. So welcome Dr Choudhury and would you like to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself please? Thank you for inviting me, Johnny. So I'm Dr. Gaurav Chaudhary, one of the respiratory consultants in the Royal Infirmary of Edinburgh. I also lead all the clinical work that happens in Lothian, along with chairing the respiratory managed clinical network for NHS Lothian. My research interest is in clinical and translational work around COPD with a focus on respiratory infections in COPD. And I also co-chaired the National Interface Group for the Scottish Government, through which we are trying to develop pathways to help manage chronic respiratory conditions such as COPD more in the community. So a busy job, but keeps me going. It's fantastic to have someone with such expertise on chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Why are we talking about this today? So it's a very important problem and it continues to rise, Johnny. COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, which is the full name of the disease, it's a heterogeneous disease and is now the third commonest cause of mortality worldwide. The prevalence is rising to an extent because we now understand the disease better, we're getting better in diagnosing, but also because of the fact that people are living longer. And whilst that's fantastic news for our aging family members, and friends, age factor is sort of changing the profile of the disease that we are experiencing and dealing with, like any other chronic long-term condition. So it's an important problem. It's there to stay and it's good to know about it in details. So as you know, Dr. Chaudhary, this podcast is run by the college and it's mainly aimed for internal medicine and general internal medicine trainees. And the key things that we talk about are cases about patients coming into the front door in acute medicine. And I'd like you just for the basics for the listeners, what is COPD and how common is it and how do we diagnose it? Sure. So COPD is a chronic inflammatory lung disease that happens in response to inhalation of noxious particles, most common being cigarette smoking in this part of the world that leads to that inflammation in the lungs with subsequent destruction of the lung tissue and inflammation of airways, leading to a variety of symptoms that present as cough, could be sputum production, wheeze, breathlessness. Often patients, particularly in the earlier half of their trajectory, would just complain of recurrent chest infections, often get mislabeled as winter bronchitis. So they can all be part of that spectrum of COPD within that umbrella term of COPD. In terms of diagnosis, so you have to do a bit of a history taking and do some tests. History taking in terms of the symptoms, identifying the risk factors, symptoms I've already spoken about, so breathlessness, cough, 
sputum production, wheeze. And please remember that not every patient will get all the symptoms. So it happens in a variety of format. And then very important to remember is to identify the risk factors that could be associated with COPD, most commonly being cigarette smoking, but also things like reduced exercise capacity, which basically, you know, physical inactivity is an important risk factor. And then if you're suspicious that the person has got COPD, you would refer them for some detailed pulmonary function tests. The way to absolutely, the gold standard of diagnosing COPD is to do a post-bronchodilator. So basically what we do is we offer them a salbutamol nebulizer or four puffs of the salbutamol inhaler, and you'll do a pre and a post set of breathing tests. Most commonly is FEV1, which is the forced expiratory volume in one second and the forced vital capacity. And then the ratio needs to be less than 0.7 to be diagnosed with COPD in an obstruction airway pattern. So that's in a nutshell, but there are lots of other caveats associated with the diagnosis, but should give some pointers for the general internal medicine people if they're suspicious of someone developing COPD. That's great. So it's an airways disease is kind of impression that I'm getting because it's causing disruption in the airflow and that's how we diagnose it. We all have experience in seeing these patients in the front door and I guess maybe through the pandemic access to spirometry is maybe not as accessible and we've had some patients coming in who may have had de novo presentations of CBD. Is this something that you've seen in your time over the last few years? Oh, absolutely. That is a very common group of patients, Johnny. So patients who present with all risk factors and then have their first hospital presentation, which is always a bad sign because the way we define exacerbations, which I'm sure will come at a later stage in the stock is mild, moderate and severe. And someone's having a hospitalization because of COPD, that's already a sign of being categorized as severe exacerbation. And that has its own sort of set of effects and repercussions. It already means that the patient may have well-established diagnosis of COPD and might already be in that severe part of the trajectory. Nevertheless, yes, if you're seeing those first presenters, it's very important to make sure that you follow them up. And then uh, once they're better from the exacerbations, start thinking of all the necessary tests that they need to rubber stamp them with the diagnosis and then deal with that chronic management of COPD at a later stage. So let's just be clear then, what is your definition of exacerbation, Dr. Chaudhary? Yes, so the way we define exacerbation is it's a sustained worsening of patient symptoms from the usual stable state beyond normal day-to-day variation. So that's really important to remember. Uh, Some people might be breathless on a day-to-day basis, but it's from what's different from their baseline is very important to classify as whether they're having an exacerbation or not. It could be mild, moderate, or severe, as I've just explained. The mild is when the patients are needing more bronchodilators than their usual baseline. Moderate is when they are experiencing symptoms to an extent that they end up needing antibiotics and or steroids, but still are being managed and managed to stay in their own home settings in the community. And severe exacerbation is what we describe as presentation to the ED or to the hospital 
In terms of symptoms, it's in variety, again, the same symptoms that you would see in COPD generally. So worsening breathlessness, cough with sputum production, chest tightness. Patients often say that they have got a very severe chest tightness, which is almost a sign of bronchospasm. And then these are the usual symptoms that you would sort of encounter in patients presenting with COPD exacerbation. Very rarely if they're presenting with something more serious, such as a decompensated type of respiratory failure. You might see some patients presenting with increasing drowsiness, headache, a diminished respiratory effort, etc. That's really helpful just for the listener to get an overview of how these patients might present. I guess before we talk about a case, I'd like to just sort of get your opinion on, are there any pillars of COPD management? And as a comparison, previously I've heard cardiologists talk about the pillars of heart failure management, like the addition of an SGLT2 inhibitor or a potassium sparing diuretic, beta blockade and renin-angiotensin blockade. Is an equivalent for COPD? And what are your thoughts on that with COPD management? Yeah, so I sort of classify them into two broad main sort of headings, Johnny. So One, you're trying to reduce the risk of disease progression. And the other main pillar is you're trying to improve their symptoms. So when you're trying to improve their symptoms, it's usually through things like appropriate inhalers. And the main goal is to try and improve their exercise capacity. So you would start them as a rule of thumb. If you're seeing someone for the first time, and if they are symptomatic, you'd offer them a bronchodilator. Now, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritties of the pharmacotherapy classification, but usually Usually we start off with a single or a dual combination bronchodilator to improve their breathlessness and relieve them of their symptoms of wheeze. But very important to remember is as adjuncts to this, there are other non-pharmacological therapies that are very important in relieving the symptoms. So you'd think about things like at a later stage, do I need to think about referring them for an exercise program such as pulmonary rehabilitation? Do they have heart failure? Do I need to start them on some diuretics? look at their oxygenation level, so on and so forth, and addressing risk factors such as ongoing cigarette smoking, etc. Now, when it comes to the other pillar of reducing the future risk of exacerbation or reducing the risk, that's where, again, pharmacotherapy is extremely important. And there is a lot of role of starting. If the patients are frequently exacerbating, we would consider giving them inhaled corticosteroid as part of their inhaler therapy, because lots of research shows that the inhaled corticosteroid, along with the bronchodilators, help to reduce the frequency of exacerbations. There are other little you know, caveats that you can add to as part of their ongoing treatment monitoring. So things that I've already mentioned, such as smoking cessation, pulmonary rehabilitation, again, is a very tried and tested method of preventing future exacerbations. Look at their BMI. If they're underweight, it's very important to try and improve their fat-free muscle mass. So refer them to a dietitian, which happens quite a lot in COPD along with other chronic long-term conditions. And then finally, there are, you know, other novel therapies that we would consider in a small subgroup of patients, such as, you know, long-term acrylides. A very small group of patients often end up needing a non-invasive ventilation at home home. And then there are some very fancy techniques that we can think about, such as lung volume reduction technique, be it surgical or non-surgical, as part of their ongoing clinical management trajectory. That's a really good overview of the management that you might see in these patients. I'd like to move on to a case now, if that's okay. Sure. So let's just change the scenery a bit. 
And let's just say that we're working in the acute medical unit now. And you're on call and you've been asked to see someone who's been in the emergency department for the last six hours or so waiting for a bed in the medical unit. This chap's a 67-year-old man and he's got a suspected diagnosis of CBD. But as we're saying before, he hasn't had any formal spirometry and he's presented with a 10-day history of productive cough, yellow sputum, and is generally a bit unwell with fever, but no evidence of any fever on the assessment in the ED. He's breathless and he's wheezy, and that's been getting worse over the last 24 hours. And he's been using his subutamol inhaler. He's used one full inhaler in the last 24 hours. And of note, really, over the last two years, his exercise tolerance has been getting worse. He's now unable to dress himself without getting breathless. About two years ago, he was breathless on walking at about 100 metres in the flat. His medications include Spiriva Respimat, 2.5 micrograms, two puffs once in the morning. And he's on Symbicort 400 slash 12, one puff twice a day. And that, his GP has been managing that over the last two years. And just whenever you ask him or you're reading the notes, he's had three exacerbations, but hasn't presented to hospital previously. And he's been on steroids and some antibiotics, doxycycline for the last five days. He still smokes. He's been smoking for over 30 years, about 20 cigarettes per day. He is vaccinated. He's had his COVID vaccine and his flu vaccine. He's had all four COVID vaccines. And when you see him, he's breathless. He's using end of bed accessory muscles and he's wheezy. You can hear that at the end of the bed. His pulse is about 90. Respirate's about 25. Sats are 90% on air. His heart rate's about 1900, as I said. His blood pressure's about 100 over 50. And that's as much as you've got at the moment. There's no fever recorded on his OBS chart. So I've given you a lot of information there, but the key thing is that you're worried about him. He looks unwell. He's breathless. What's your approach to that? And and how would you assess this patient? Yeah, so from what you're telling me, Johnny, this patient is presenting with a severe exacerbation. So he's in the hospital. He's got a known diagnosis of COPD. He's a smoker. So immediately I can identify a risk factor as to why he's exacerbating so frequently. So it's very important to sort of initially assess the patient, as you say, so you would start off with your usual A, B, C, D, E, like you do with any acutely unwell patients. As part of your, if the patient is wheezy and coming in breathlessness, you would want to start them on some controlled oxygen. But before that, I would say, since it's oxygen saturations are 90 on room air, usually for COPD patients, we go for scale. So anything between 88 to 92 is acceptable for COPD patients. It would be worthwhile doing an arterial blood gas. Now, I know there's lots of viewpoints on whether Every patient needs a arterial blood gas or not when they present with a COPD exacerbation. But my advice would be please do one. Even if the patient is not looking very unwell from bedside, it's really important to do a baseline arterial blood gas so that if the patient then become very unwell, you've got something to go back and compare as to what their acid-based balance was like, what the oxygenation was like. It will also give you very helpful information on if they're a chronic type to a retainer or not. So all this kind of information would help me then to decide and get that full picture of how the patient might have been in the community. So you will do the arterial blood gas, you will give them some controlled oxygen um, just to help with their symptoms and start them on a nebulizer. So 2.5 of salbutamol nebulizer is absolutely fine. Often there's a tendency to give five milligrams of salbutamol nebulizer, but you've already mentioned that the patient is quite tachycardic. So just start 
off with 2.5 milligrams of nebulizer would be absolutely fine. And if they still continue to be wheezy, uh, then you can think about adding in an apratopium nebulizer on top of that. So you've done your nebulizers, you've done your oxygen, you've done an arterial blood gas, you would now want to do some blood tests on the patient just to see from what you're telling me, it sounds like he's having an infective exacerbation. So he's been feverish, he had been bringing up some dirty yellow sputum. So you'd want to do some blood tests, including looking at the inflammatory markers. As a side thing, it's always good to look at their eosinophil level. I know you'd look at the neutrophil count, but just look at the eosinophil count as well, because sometimes that helps us decide whether they would be responsive to inhaled corticosteroids or not in the future. So that's important information that I would, as a respiratory physician, watch out for. Check their baseline biochemistry, especially because you're giving so many nebulizers. So it's important to check the potassium and look at a CRP. So that's your basics done. You've initiated a management. You send the patient for a chest x-ray. That's really important just to rule out any other associated cause of their decline, be it a pneumonia or in the current times, it could be COVID. So very important to do a chest x-ray also to rule out other things like pneumothoraces. And then you reassess basically. So give the patient a couple of nebulizers start them on some steroids as well. That's the other thing I forgot to mention. So 30 milligrams of prednisolone is absolutely sufficient. Often, again, there is a sort of a dubiety as to whether to give them 30 or 40, but for COPD patients, 30 milligrams of prednisolone is absolutely enough. So you start them on the nebulizers, the steroids, and then assess. If you're almost certain that this is going to be an infective exacerbation, you can continue the antibiotics, but I would wait for the bloods to come back um, just to corroborate and look at the chest x-ray and then take things forward from there. So that would be my initial assessment. And then obviously it seems like the patient is struggling. Reassess after a couple of hours. If they feel better, you can sometimes in some cases think about an early facilitated discharge because we've got very well-connected community respiratory teams who can provide them with that nebulizer in a community setting. They can go and check the patient in the house, but obviously if they're not improving or if they're sitting sort of in one of those borderline cases where you're worried about the patients might deteriorate or if the blood test or the blood gas or something that worries you, then you admit them for at least 24 hours for further observation. That's a really comprehensive approach to this patient. I guess when you go back to the patient, you're just finishing your post-date ward round and you come back just to see how he's doing. You listen into his chest after you've seen him. He's end of bed. He's still got long expiratory wheeze. He's got accessory muscles and you see he's almost got almost a tripod position actually now. And there's no cyanosis, but you listen in, he's got prolonged expiratory wheeze in all the zones. Staring at the bases and he just looks a wee bit more drowsy compared to when you saw him. And when you came back to see the gas, actually the initial gas had a pH of 7.3, PCO2 of 7, a PO2 of 8, and a sodium bicarbonate of 29. And his potassium was 3.5 and his lactate was 2.2. And the x-ray didn't show any pneumothorax, but there was a small patch of some consolidation in the right lower lobe. And his CRP sat around 30, white cell count was 15, neutrophilia 12, and his eosinophil count was 0.4. His EGFR was better than 60. And you're a bit more worried about him. What are you thinking, Dr. Chaudhary? And what kind of things should we be discussing with the patient or trying to work out and plan for? So from the blood tests and the chest x-ray, it does seem like that our initial suspicion is right. So he's got different infective exacerbation. He's got raised white cell count, raised CRP, a bit of change in their chest x-ray. But please also remember that some of these patients would have 
recurrent courses of prednisolone in the community. So the neutrophilia sometimes could be because of the prolonged steroid use. So that's why it's so important to get that 360 degree picture rather than just depending on one marker for deciding whether the patient has got an infection or not. But in this case, it does seem like he has an infection with some changes in their x-ray. So if he had been on doxycycline already, I would think about changing the antibiotics, perhaps think about uh, look through their sputum microbiology. That's really important. Sometimes if you forget to do that, look through their previous microbiology to see if he's grown anything in the past or not. And accordingly, you might want to just change the antibiotics to something different. And comoxiclav or cotrimoxazole usually covers most of the other pathogens that usually the COPD cohort would grow. But please also remember that some of these patients can have coexistent bronchiectasis and then they start growing the other weird and wonderful bugs such as pseudomonas. So that's why it's really important to look through previous sputum results. And the initial management, I should have also mentioned that if possible, send a sputum sample right at the start as well for general culture and sensitivity and do a full viral throat swab because sometimes, you know, these patients, it could just be a viral exacerbation, which is giving them those chest extra changes or those infective symptoms. So that's why it's very important to do a viral throat swab. But anyway, I would probably change his antibiotics at this stage. The arterial blood gas that you have mentioned, it does sound like he is sort of borderline decompensated type respiratory failure. So you said his pH was 7.3. So that's sort of heading towards a bit of an acidosis. His CO2 is climbing. So if the patient is now more drowsy and looks a bit more sort of tundered, I would ask the team in the medical admission unit to repeat the arterial blood gas just to see if he's becoming more decompensated or not. So decompensated type respiratory failure is when they're hypoxic and hypercapnic, so the CO2 climbs above 6 with evidence of acidosis, so the hydrogen ions are greater than 45 nanomole per liter, or their pH is less than 7.35. If the repeat blood gas is more or less similar to the one that you've just described, I would still persevere with conservative management, but just keep a very close eye on the patient, because if they become more drowsy or if the arterial blood gas worsens, that's when you would think about giving them a trial of non-invasive end ventilation. Having said that, it's very important as you've already asked me, you know, is it important to have a chat with the patient? Absolutely, yes. And you would want to have that chat while they're still sort of in a state to have a conversation and give them their opinion. I usually, if the patients are known to me from beforehand, and that I'm sure most of the respiratory physicians will say the same thing, we try to make an anticipatory care planning along with deciding levels of escalation from beforehand for the patients that we know about. So often you'll find that they've got track alerts on track, which stipulates what sort of escalation plan we would follow. But if the patient is not known to the team, if this is someone who's just presented, it's important to have a quick conversation with the patient at that stage as to what they want, what are their expectations and how they had been feeling. So it's almost like doing a bit of a background investigation on what their physical capacity has been like, if they had been their quality of life, etc. Because that aids you in the process of deciding the escalation. From what you've told me, it seems like he's been, you know, his excess tolerance been very poor and he's got severe COPD. So in his case, I would say a trial of NIV would be the ceiling of treatment. And because of the severity of the disease that he is in, in terms of the spectrum, won't be suitable for a favorable outcome if you consider invasive ventilation in them.
So it's important to have that chat with the patient, but when is the right time? No one knows. On one hand, you wouldn't want to make the patient more anxious about when they're feeling poorly. So some information and then, you know, just ongoing monitoring, a chat with the next of kin is what I would perhaps do in his case and then reassess and if needed, and we can start them on NIV, bearing in mind that it's a very unpleasant procedure, actually. So NIV, although it works very well, when you carefully select patients in terms of improving the respiratory acidosis, in some cases, it's an extremely difficult procedure to endure. And I sometimes explain that to the patient if they've not had NIV in the past. So it's almost same kind of feeling that you would get if you stick your head out of a car window when the car is going at 100 miles an hour. So that's same kind of feeling that you would endure if you're on NIV. And that's sometimes important to spell out to the patient if they've not had NIV in the past. That's a really insightful way of describing it. I was going to ask you what you tell patients, what you explain to them before you suggest going on IV. And in your experience, I won't ask you just to go through how NIV works because we'll have other episodes on that. But what's your experience of how the patients respond? You ask them when they want to go on NIV. So some of these patients would have had NIV in the past, so they have, they have the experience. But if they're presenting for the first time, obviously they would want to try anything that would help them get better. So most of the patients would be very you know, positive about giving it a trial. Some patients, especially the ones who've got very end-stage disease and have that feeling of claustrophobia because of their hyperexpansion, just would say, no, we don't want it. Or sometimes we make that plan on their behalf from previous experiences when we know that the patients in the past just haven't managed to tolerate NIV. And there are ways to calm them down. So, you know, if the patients are feeling extremely claustrophobic or anxious whilst being on NIV, you can offer them some anxiolytics a bit of morphine or lorazepam sometimes help calm them down. And then you just sort of, as you say, I'm not going to go into the nitty gritties of NIV, but you can sort of start off with very gentle pressure and then gradually make them acclimatize and accustomed to the machine and then gradually increase the settings and sometimes that help as well. When I'm putting someone on NIV, it's very important to assess within the first six to 12 hours. And lots of research shows that an improvement within the first couple of hours is good enough to tell us if the patient is going to get better or not. But I usually give them at least 12 hours to see if the acid-base balance is starting to head in the right direction or not. And if maximum by 24 hours, I see no improvement in their arterial blood gas, that's when I would want to have a chat with the family to say this is probably not going to work. The message that's coming through is that treatment escalation planning is really paramount in terms of patient-centered care. That's something that we should be discussing with all our patients. When do you do that? Obviously, when you see someone in the acute setting, you have to make these decisions there. But when do you find the best time to have these discussions with patients? So yeah, absolutely. So treatment escalation plans are extremely important and they need to be almost paired with the anticipatory care planning document that we encourage the GPs to do in the GP land in primary care. So as I've just said, if I know the patients, we try to make these escalation plans way in advance. So they'll have track alerts and then it's almost just reinforcing that into the treatment escalation plan when they come into the hospital. 
if this is someone that I've never been aware of before, if it's someone I'm meeting for the first time, I would initiate the conversation when I see them downstairs in the medical receiving unit. But as we all know, you know, medical admission units are a busy ward and not the best place to have a discussion around treatment escalation plans. So sometimes I would initiate it, give them some information give them time to think and reflect on what we've talked about, be it DNAR status or without making any final decision, just a sort of like a wholesome chat around what the medical thoughts and perspective are in that person's case and leave them to think about it. Sometimes you would want to discuss that with their family. And then when they go up to the respiratory ward, the next morning, we will just continue from there on and then perhaps close the loop would be my advice. So do it gently, do it in phases rather than trying to do it all in one go, because that's when, like any other chronic long-term conditions, UPD comes with a huge amount of anxiety. And especially when someone's feeling poorly, it might just tip over their breathlessness to even a worse state if they start hyperventilating because of the discussion that they have had. In extreme cases, when the patient is very unwell and you need to make a decision you would obviously you would do what you think medical is best for the patient but again in that case it's important to keep the next of kin and the family in the loop in that discussion and have a chat with them as soon as possible would be my advice that's really helpful and i think all the listeners would really find that wise advice before we kind of wrap things up let's just say our patient doesn't deteriorate any further and they respond to their treatments when you see them what kind of journey would they have in your experience and how would things go for them in, in the community So that's really important to follow the patient up because as I've said, any hospitalization is classified as a severe exacerbation. And it's so important to take the history around how many exacerbations they've had in the previous 12 months, because that helps you with that risk stratification assessment of where they are in terms of their clinical severity stratification. Very important to follow these patients up. I often say that, you know, Every exacerbation is almost like a ticking time bomb in the pathogenesis of COPD. So the time interval between the next exacerbation and the associated mortality and morbidity sort of gets smaller and smaller as the patients are having re-exacerbation. So it's very important to try and address these issues as soon as you can and make necessary investigations for follow-up, be it in the clinic, be it in a community setting. So if someone is known to me, I would often discharge the patient back to the community respiratory teams because they do a wonderful sort of follow-up piece of work in terms of making sure that the patient is continuing to improve, see whether they need some pulmonary rehabilitation in due course or not, so on and so forth. If the patient is not known to me, I would then bring them back to my clinic, do a set of breathing tests. If they're having a lot of exacerbations, I would think about requesting a high-resolution CT scan of the chest just to see if there are any other associated cause of this deterioration or not. Up to 30% of the patients who have severe exacerbation of COPD can also have coexistent bronchiectasis. So that's a really important finding that we are, you know, encountering these days. And bronchiectasis is now considered to be almost an independent predictor of mortality in COPD patients. So it's really important to try and investigate these patients appropriately. And then follow-up is key, as I say, and as you mentioned as well, be it addressing their risk factors. In this case, smoking cessation would be very important to sort of address. Think about whether the patient would partake in pulmonary rehabilitation or not, and then making sure that, you know, we are trying to somehow break that vicious cycle of multiple exacerbations. 
So we've talked about so much, Dr. Chaudhry. We've talked about the basic pathophysiology of COPD. We've talked about the incidence of COPD, the key pillars of the management of a patient who comes in with COPD and an exacerbation. And we've gone through a case about someone who has had decompensated respiratory failure, perhaps needing NIV or someone who's improved and managed to improve with medical therapy. What were your take-home messages for the general internal medicine registrar assessing these patients in the front door in acute medical unit? Sure. So it's a serious condition. So my take-home messages would be, please don't just treat the exacerbation. Think about what might be causing it. Seek help from the respiratory team, even if you think the patient is good to go home, just to make some follow-up plans if the patient is not known to the respiratory team from beforehand. Often, you know, we forget to do simple things that might make a huge difference, such as, you know, checking the inhaler technique whilst the patient is in the hospital, making sure that they're on the appropriate inhaler so if you think that the patient hasn't been picked up by a specialist team in a long time, it won't be unreasonable to get in touch with either the respiratory nurse or the on-call team just to assess their inhaler technique, make sure that they're on the right class of inhalers. It's an important problem and it's only going to get busier and busier in terms of you'll see a lot more of COPD in the hospital is the second commonest cause of emergency to unscheduled care in the United Kingdom. The National Confidential Enquiry into Patient Outcome and Death, so the NCPOD report from 2015 shows that annually there could be potentially up to 30,000 deaths just because of COPD. I've already mentioned it's the third commonest cause of death worldwide. And the, the NCPOD report also, you know, sort of highlighted from the 2015 report that up to 40% of the patients when they present to the hospital with an exacerbation could have another exacerbation. So get readmitted or die because of COPD within the first 90 days of that particular exacerbation. So that's why it's really important to address the exacerbation as a warning sign. A lot of the COPD patients have associated cardiovascular and cerebrovascular disease. So there's up to a 2.5-fold increased risk of acute coronary syndrome, even if it's a type 2 MI, but there is a risk of cardiovascular complications and up to 1.2-fold chance of having a stroke within the first 60 days of a COPD exacerbation. So almost do that 360-degree approach to assessing the patients and address any cardiovascular or cerebrovascular risk factors that you need to assess. Uh, do an ECG, always remember to do an ECG, which we are very good at doing, I must say. And then yeah, follow-up is key for these patients just so that, you know, we don't treat, you know, the presentation and forget to address what might have actually triggered the exacerbation in the first place. So that's really important to remember. Your talk has been fantastic to listen to, and it's been a pleasure to chat with you, Dr. Chaudhry. I guess the key thing that's coming through from what you said is that we have to assess these patients as we would with any other patient holistically, and patient-centered care is a key thing, but it's more than just treating their airways disease, it's treating every other aspect of their health. Absolutely. That's a very good summary, Johnny. So thank you for chatting with me, and as I said, it's been a pleasure to chat with you for the college. And if anybody would like to leave any feedback for Dr. Chaudhry, then you can contact him through the Twitter account for the ICP College and we can pass on any questions for him. And please, we welcome your feedback. Once again, thank you very much, Dr. Gurab Chaudhry. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me. Thank you.